All right, I started a series called What's Next? And I have said to several people just in conversation, usually people I don't know too well, when they talk about, I hope that 2021 will be better than 2020 was. And I usually introduce my statement by saying this, I really do hate to be Johnny Raincloud, the guy that spoils the party, but I truly don't believe that this is going away. I believe we're in for more turmoil and primarily, it's based on the evidence that I see. We didn't resolve the issues in 2020, so they're carrying over to 2021. With what I see as more animosity inside of people, more frustration, there's definitely more depression and more anxiety. That's a given. Things are truly heating up. We're in the middle of fulfilling prophecies of the scriptures right in front of our eyes. I repeat that all the time to remind you. So you want to be able to seek God with everything that you have and we may have, you know, breaks in the sky and some sunshine and, you know, some mild weather spiritually, morally speaking, politically speaking and economically speaking and so on. But I truly believe we're going to be in times from here to the coming of Christ, the rapture, the great tribulation, the second coming that are going to escalate. Reading and prayer and so forth is going to be what will sustain you. Fellowship with other Christians is what is going to sustain you. And I genuinely look forward to being here. On a Sunday morning, I truly do. Every other morning I get up, I'm pretty excited about living just in general and the goals that I have and the things that I do. But Sunday mornings, I'm really looking forward to being here. And I do have fellowship with other Christians during the week, thank God, on a daily basis. But not as much as we have here on Sunday mornings, which is the Lord's Day, right? The creation principle, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, Saturday, was rolled over in the first advent of Christ to Sunday, and we keep it as a creation principle. That was from the days of Genesis chapter 1, when God began time. We keep that principle. And people who don't, they're going to find that they're suffering, but they won't know why, I suppose. They're going to find that they're suffering more from sicknesses. Not necessarily death, but sicknesses and wore out mentally and just kind of dragging around. And problems seem worse, which they always seem worse at night, if you ever noticed. And they kind of seem better in the morning. Same problem. We have to seek God with all that we have, and it starts on keeping the Lord's Day a separate day, a holy day. Well, I started with the message series, What's Next? And we've gone through eight messages so far, so two months' worth. And today, I want to give another installment of just speaking about Jesus, because we've talked about the rapture, then we talk about the Great Tribulation, and the personality that is most imposing in the Great Tribulation is the Antichrist, and also the false prophet, but mainly the Antichrist, or the beast. And unless we understand Jesus, we won't have much of a comparison to an antichrist. As a matter of fact, one of the things in Christian circles where people profess Christ that will cause them to fall over into an antichrist system is that they're not clear on who Jesus is. So unless we're clear on Christ, we can't properly understand an antichrist. I'll say it again. I anticipate personally more headaches and problems from people who are inside the church. It's always been the case since God had a people of God. Men of God or women of God had more problems with people who professed they were of God. Look at Jesus' life than those who did not. Even the Romans didn't want to crucify Jesus. The religious crowd did. So we'll go to Revelation chapter 19. We'll read verse 9 and 10. We'll see something here that you may have noticed through your readings. In Revelation chapter 19 at verse 9, there's mention of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 9 it says, And he saith unto me, Write, 
Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, which would imply that not everybody is there. Not everybody who's ever lived is there. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is an angel, by the way, speaking to the apostle John. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now that's what I want to concentrate on. That Christ, Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to make note while we're there. That John falls down. When he first sees the angel who's going to bring him the revelation. It's singular. Of Jesus Christ. All the details are revelations. Small r, plural. But the book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. When John falls down at the angel, and it's more than one occasion to worship him, the angel repeatedly tells him, don't do that. This will go along to something I just mentioned. If an antichrist, or I should say, when the antichrist comes along to deceive people, that's one thing. When the antichrist comes and can deceive, and I always use the word professing Christian. Whatever I profess or people profess may not necessarily be what they actually are. So professing Christians will be liable to fall to a deception of a false Christ because they don't know the true Christ. One of the things that we read about, you see them in books and so on and other things, social media, of professing Christian people falling down to pray to these angels, visitations from angels. But if you'll notice in the scriptures here, a true angel of God, not a demon spirit that's posing as an angel. The true angel of God will always refuse worship. As we see here, and this is what we find in the book of the Revelation, true angels that are of God do not receive worship. And by the way, just as an aside, we see Jesus receiving worship while he walked here on the earth. So that says something too, along with our topic. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have details that we go through here and others, of course, around the world do with the Bible of the details of eschatology, the end times of the last days. Here we find a type of statement that tells us if we look at Jesus, you see the spirit of prophecy, not just the details. The details are already registered in God's book, the Bible, but that he's the spirit of it. How often I've heard for many, many years from professing Christians that they don't like to hear about end times prophecy because it scares them. Well, that's not the spirit of prophecy. Yes, the book of the Revelation records a lot of bad things. It records the judgment of God. But for that matter, the Bible records a lot of bad things. And that's the judgment of God. But what is the spirit of God's judgment? What's behind it? Like we say to people, well, you know, he meant well, but you know, it didn't work out so well. That's not what he meant, you know, when people misapply their words. We need to know what's the whole point of all of this here. Well, the point of it is to bring back what we read in Genesis and assuming that you're starting at the very beginning of the Bible now in this new year. We read of what Milton wrote about, a paradise lost through sin. When you read through the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are reading of the paradise being restored. We lost it through sin, our parents, Adam, Eve, and then we get all the way down the line to this very day, we lost paradise. But when we get to the book of the Revelation, the spirit of prophecy 
is to restore the earth, the universe, our humanity, and so on, to restore it to Edenic paradise. Maybe we would think, I would think, even beyond what we read in Eden. So paradise is restored in the book of the Revelation, but the details is what trips people up. They don't like to hear about the judgments of God. No, they're coming anyway, so the way I figure it is that it's best to just face it. Many, many preachers, I told you this, many, many preachers avoid touching the subject of eschatology. They avoid talking about the end times. And why is that? The people don't want to hear it. Not all the people, but a lot of people, who, as I just mentioned, they don't want to hear about the end times because it scares them. So the preacher, condescending, acquiescing to what the people want, this is what merchants do. If I was to go into business to make money, then, as the old saying goes, the customer's always right. Because I'm only looking to make money from a customer. That's why you go in business. I'll add this in as well. And so this is why people, some people want socialism. Because it takes away your ambition or entrepreneurial skills or ambio, your ambition, because they want free stuff. And this is the sinful nature of man. We don't see anything other than the grace of God and what God gives certainly is free. But we're taught in the scriptures that we must work, we must go to work, and so on. So when it comes to Jesus being the spear of the prophecy, that everything that we read, the coming of an antichrist, the great tribulation, and so on, is to precede the second coming of Christ, where we have paradise restored. This restores to us hope. There's hope. Now, I've said this to you before because we're all Americans in here. Is there ever been an election, I don't know, where every American was happy with who was elected as the president or the governor of their state or whoever is our local officials here? I don't know. I doubt there was ever a time when every single American was happy with the outcome of a vote. Thankfully, when we look at God, he was never voted in. As we sang about a moment ago, our God reigns. That's not something that just happened. He reigned before he created the heavens and the earth. He reigned before he created man, before he created the land, the seas, the animals, all the creatures in the sea and in the sky, the fowls, the birds of the air. He was reigning. And all through history, as we see man, who is primarily, not the only, but primarily the major player out of order. And all of this here, the history of mankind is not always that great. God still reigned. And in the future, in eternity, God will continue to reign. He's never been off that throne. He's never been in a position of subordination where he was obedient to anybody because he's God. And Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we go in the book of Genesis, the very first promise that God makes is of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a Christ. And that promise is made early, early on, right after man sinned. And that shows the benevolence of God. The goodness of God, that God desires for us to be saved from the wrath to come. And that's what the word saved means. We need to see the spirit of Bible prophecy, that which has been fulfilled and that which will yet be fulfilled, whatever's being fulfilled right now. The spirit behind it, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God is working for good, right? Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. Amen. It's all working for good. Exceptions would be when we go to church meetings, read the Bible, and all people are gaining is information. And that's not what God intended, just to give us information. That's part of it. It's a good thing. But we read in Proverbs, it says that wisdom is the principal thing. 
our King James puts it this way, and with all thy getting, get wisdom. How is this working? Well, one thing that so many people miss, and the reason that they don't want to hear about the end times and an antichrist, even so much so, their imagination will manipulate the scriptures to say that that's not how it goes, and then they get further and they dig into the scriptures and manipulate it and twist it, pervert it, so that it comes out without all of this. If we don't see what is the spirit behind it, that is causing right now everything is working together for good, even if it's not to our liking, or it's beyond our understanding. I mean, there are many things going on right now that I just don't understand. I don't understand. A man who died last week in California in a prison at the age of 80, the FBI said that he was the most prolific serial killer ever, whose name I'll just leave it off. He killed 90 people in 40 different states. 90 people. And I wonder to myself how he gets to live out his life with food and clothing and all these things. And the 90 people who died, they didn't get their life back. See, this is unjust, in my view. And so I don't understand this. I only know that God is superintending everything. And under his watchful eye, he has many principles, many laws, and here's one of them. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever things a man sows, that shall he also reap. And we don't always see it here in time, but it shows up definitely in eternity. We read here in Revelation chapter 9 at verse 9, we'll see this again in another verse, that not everyone is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the Bible says here at verse 9, Revelation 19, Blessed is he who is called to it. Many are called, but few are chosen. So people have opportunity, but for whatever their reason is, they don't take opportunity, and they put their trust in other things, and other people, and other systems, and other philosophies, and so on. But when we talk about Jesus, I want to just review just a little bit here. When we talk about Jesus, the evidence is compelling. That one man could not have fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament in particular, and there's some in the New Testament as well, by chance. So just to review, for example, I gave you an example from Lee Strobel, an author who was an atheist at one time and a graduate of Yale in law school, but he was never a lawyer, but he's a legal scholar. And he wrote for the Chicago Tribune for many years, and now he's born again and he writes Christian books. And in the case for Christianity, he takes Peter Stoner's work, which I've given that to you on several occasions, who was a mathematician. And as we look at prophecies, just first, Peter Stoner takes eight. And the probability of those eight being fulfilled by chance is astronomical in a sense, and that's only eight. Again, if we took Alfred Edersheim's, the Jewish convert to Christianity, who had a brilliant mind and pastored, wrote books on theology. His estimate is that Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies when he arrived. And whatever the number is, it's very large that this one man, Jesus, fulfilled these prophecies. So if we took out of that 48 of those prophecies, the chances of one man fulfilling simply 48, which is not really that simple, 48 prophecies where he would be born, how he would die in his ministry, and born of a virgin, all these things that we know, and you string them out to 48. The math works out to be it's only one chance in 10 to the 157th power. To try to even get the operative phrase we use today, the salient phrase is wrap our minds around this. Well, you can't wrap your mind around a figure that big. That's 48 prophecies, not 456. Think about an electron, which can be, I would say, barely seen to my understanding of how these work with an electron microscope. They say that you can actually see an electron pulling away in its orbit from the atom or the nucleus. 
If you took all of the electrons in the observable universe, which obviously can't be observed because it's on the subatomic level, if you took all of the electrons in the observable universe, it still wouldn't be large enough for this number, one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That's 48 prophecies. When you keep adding them up and adding them up, the numbers become so large. I've read on this many, many times, and I literally can't wrap my mind around even the illustrations that mathematicians, people in statistics and probability use to try to picture how this would be if it would happen by chance, just what we say coincidence. It's not probable. When people turn away from Jesus, who we know as the Christ, they're turning away from the evidence if they've heard it. And if they've not heard it, well, that's one thing that's different. But when we have the evidence before us that no man ever did the things that Jesus did, starting with the prophecies that he fulfilled. And then we read a couple of weeks back, the Apostle John writing that if he were to write down everything that Jesus did, or the apostles were to write down everything that Jesus did, he uses a hyperbolic statement that even the world couldn't contain the books. 48 prophecies fulfilled by one man would also be like this. Let's say, for instance, you go to a library that has 65,000 books. That's a lot of books. The Library of Congress has 170 million books and articles and archived photographs and stuff like that. 170 million. But if you took a library with 65,000 books, that's quite a lot of books. And let's say they're of medium size. And then you open up the books, right? you start to open up one by one. And let's just assume that the first book you open, the first word on the first page is the, T-H-E. So you take the T and you place it here. And then you go out a mile and you place the H. And then you go out a mile and you place the E. A mile space in between, and let's say N is the next one. So you put the I at another mile's distance, N at another mile's distance, and go through the whole book, placing each letter a mile distance apart with the spaces in between one mile. And do that for 65,000 books. By the time it took you to count each letter of all those books, I forget how many light years will have passed for you to count each letter of 65,000 books where each letter is spaced at one mile apart. Same chance you would have of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies, let alone 456 prophecies, or over 300 prophecies, as some say. It's not probable that this was an ordinary man, but this was God come in the flesh. The promise being fulfilled when paradise was lost, that he would send a savior, and that Jesus is that savior, and he becomes the spirit of prophecy. So I also mentioned to you about the triunity because this is certainly a point of contention from monotheistic religions such as Judaism and Islam, Christianity being the third. But they say, you're not monotheistic. You have three gods. Again, I pointed out to you that we have the universe made up of matter. It's made up of space in which the matter fits in space. And then time. And we keep time. And you can look at the three aspects of the universe space, matter, and time. And if you took time, you could also make those into a triunity, right? We have past, present, and future, and so on. And so why would it be strange then that God, who is one, and he states that very clearly, is only one God. Why does it seem strange that he would have a triune existence? Three persons, one God. But you don't have three in the universe. Space, matter, and time, though you can look at them separately, they're all still one. We would say it this way. Hero Israel, the universe is one universe. And no one would debate it. But yet when we say, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, some say, now you've got three gods. 
But there was one God who created the universe that no scientist, no grade school person objects to the fact that it's space, it's matter, and it's time. I talked about the triple point of elements, and in particular the triple point of water, where if you take a vacuum tube and you have just these right dynamics, where the room is at freezing, or at 32 degrees, and then if you have the pressure per square inch just at 0.08 and so on, there's more numbers. When the pressure is just right, which obviously would be low pressure, and then you have the temperature just right at freezing, in that vacuum tube, which holds water, the bottom becomes iced, a solid, the middle stays fluid, and the top goes into a vapor, a gas. And you can even manipulate those numbers very, very slightly and have little changes inside that tube, but it's ice, it's water, it's a solid, it's a liquid, it's a gas. But there's only H2 and O. So why does it seem strange to people, intellectually? that God can be a triune being. And let me say this to you as well. Why is this so important? What practical value do we get from saying God's a trinity? It's very important, I'll tell you why, because it's what the book tells us. And if we start to doubt what the book tells us on one point, then we can doubt the book and what it tells us on any point, and then we're in the dark. Now, before we were saved and we came to the light, Right? That's the first day of creation. God said, and let there be light. And Jesus said, I am the light, and so on. If we start to question and doubt the book, then we're back in the darkness. Then all of a sudden the imagination kicks in. And we start to imagine what this could be, what life could be, what's God like. Is there really a God? There's no God and all that. But the Trinity is important because this is how God reveals himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are some of the things that we've already talked about. And then I also mentioned to you Jesus' reference in the New Testament to him being the Son of Man. I think we should look at this again. Come with me to Daniel chapter 7. And while you're turning there, when we look at Daniel chapter 7, we see something that's very exciting as to the spirit of prophecy. What's behind all of these prophecies? Messiah would come. Messiah will come again. And what precedes his second coming is a great tribulation and much destruction. But that destruction is really reconstruction. Okay, so we look at Daniel chapter 7. We already realize that Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. All right, let's look at verse 13 in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Now, we can make a connection right away. When we're in the book of the Revelation, behold, I come with clouds. Or behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall behold him. We're right here in the Old Testament. And a godly Jew, such as Daniel, would never refer to any human being claiming to be God. Yet that's exactly what Jesus did, as we've already studied that. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. Now here we're getting into a triunity. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him, that's the Son of Man in Daniel 7, they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion. Interesting that we're going through a battle right now, right, about dominion voting machines. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed." Now let's stop there and let's think about this. There's something that may not be so obvious when we read especially the New Testament. Now we talk about the atonement, and obviously that's very important, right? The blood of Christ that forgives us of our sins. But why does it forgive us? Why didn't God just wipe humanity out? He could have. 
we understand the resurrection. All these are critical, but they're critical to some one point. The main point is the spirit of prophecy that says, thy kingdom come. It's all pointing to the kingdom. We are Americans here. Across the nations, as so many are watching now from other parts of the world, you live in a different country. But one day, all these nations shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's where we're headed. So this should help. If your heart is soft and the seed of the word of God, as you read it daily, you hear it being spoken, and so on. If the ground is soft, if the ground is prepared for the seed and the roots go down, this becomes our hope. Though we, again, here in America, we have obligation, responsibility, as well as privilege to vote or to protest and do things, uh, legally protest, lawfully protest. It's still subordinate to the main goal of God in our lives, to bring us into the kingdom, where we shall be forever and ever and ever. Now, it's a temptation for all of us to get bogged down in this world now. And what is really difficult to detect is the fact that Jesus said, as we get closer to the end, the end of this world, not the earth, the end of this world system, the end of sin. As we get closer to it, he said, be careful of drunkenness. That was one that he named. There's several, but let me just give you these. Of drunkenness, and I'll paraphrase it as a superficial attitude, something that is usually associated with drunkenness. But he also said, be careful of the cares of this world. Just the ordinary things that I've got, you've got, we all have. The ordinary things that become distractions to the main event. I'm going through my house and making a mental tour at the moment. Brand new door that we buy, the handle's already jiggling. It's only a few weeks ago we got the door. My first response was frustration and anger. Not kick the door and break the window anger, but it's like, we just bought this. The handle's already loose. Go in the front door and that handle's loose. By the way, the door does lock, in case you're thinking, and Buddy's always on the job, in case you're thinking. So don't even think about coming in the house. And it still locks. But, you know, this is jiggling. That's jiggling. This has got to be done. That's got to be done. This has got to be done. But we're living in one of the most important times in history. I'm becoming more convinced every day that we, even more than the first century, are living in the most momentous of times. But if all we keep thinking about is COVID, your eyes are on the wrong thing. Christ he wasn't the healer. He still is the healer. Amen. He is the healer. I acknowledge what's going on. I acknowledge the death. I acknowledge the problem. But nothing is greater than God. Amen. Nothing is greater than God. Amen. Well, your business and your marriage and your children and on and on and on. These things are natural. These things deserve our attention, need our attention, and so on and so forth. But Jesus said, be careful that you don't spend so much time and so much attention that you forget the principles or to keep with the theme, you forget the spirit of prophecy. You forget what's going on right now. Right now. What's going on? That's the title of these messages. What's next? But it's not a question mark. The Bible is telling us this is what's next. You see this happening here? Look at it here in chronology. This is next. This is going to happen next. And so we take care of things that have purpose for the moment. Yes, they need to be attended to, just like hygiene, washing and brushing your teeth, keeping up on your medications, your vitamins, and whatever you do, just like you do your car. We take care of things that have purpose for the moment, but only for the moment. So we don't, well, I don't, spend all day long looking at my car, because it doesn't have that much value, that it deserves all of my attention and all of my time. It just deserves a small part, and the rest is reserved to seek God first. 
to seek God first. Otherwise, you start to forget how you've been purchased, how you've been bought. And keep this in mind. I mention it frequently. I have no intention of not mentioning it further in the future. Before Jesus comes for the church, there will be, and there is now, a great falling away. It's evident, from my research, everywhere. Falling away from the proper theology of the Bible. A falling away in attendance. And we go down this whole line of apostasia. The Bible is very clear. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing. See, this is prophecy. And that much is being fulfilled right now. It has been before we were born, but it's being fulfilled right in our midst. Right in our midst. Remember this, and i got to mention it now that I'm on the subject. Remember that when we hear from conceived people who, I don't know, they just disappeared, and when you meet them, oh, I still love the Lord. I don't say you should contradict them. That will probably just gender an argument. But in your head, you can figure out. Like Peter, who followed afar off, we could see that once he walked like this with Jesus, when the stress built up, when the time was coming for Christ to be arrested and then crucified, little by little, he walked like this. He followed afar off. We could make the argument, well, he's still working with the Lord. Yeah, okay, but not the way he used to work with the Lord. So we go into the Revelation again, and we go to Ephesus, and Jesus says, you've done this, 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 this. So everything is right, but I have somewhat against thee, because you've lost your first love. The enthusiasm for Jesus, the enthusiasm for the word, the enthusiasm of prayer and fellowship and all that is not there. And the disconcerting thing, referring to the, well, I'll just use the word negative, is Jesus saying to the Ephesians, well, you got everything right except one thing. You've lost your love for me, and if you don't get it back, I will take your candle out of its candlestick. Well, not now we get into a long explanation of why, but remember the spirit of prophecy, everything has a purpose. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven, God's purpose. And we are going through a season right now. Let's look at some of these verses again. In John chapter 8, Jesus says something very startling. Verse 58, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. If you're in John chapter 8, go to verse 12. Then spake Jesus again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me, and I would make a distinction here. It doesn't say he that is involved in Christianity. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Look at verse 28, same chapter, John chapter 8. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, right, that we read of in Daniel chapter 7. Then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And just very quickly, on the subject of the inspiration of the Bible, that God wrote the Bible, and we look at hundreds and hundreds of verses, whatever conclusion people arrive at, one conclusion you cannot arrive at is that the Bible doesn't claim to be the Word of God. Second Peter 1.21, the Bible says this, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. That verse alone, 2 Peter 1.21, tells us clearly, then we have 2 Timothy 3.16 and all these other verses, tells us clearly this book does not claim to be man's book, but the very mind of God using 40 authors 
put into their minds to write these things. Even Moses, in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, he says to Israel, he says, you know, these are the things I've given to you, but they didn't come from my mind. And so we have all these statements, some of them very, very direct, like Second Peter 1.21. There's a statement made right there that what we're reading is not coming from the mind of man or men, but directly from the mind of the one true God, the one who created the universe with space, matter, and time, the one who himself is triune, the one who himself can do anything, and with him nothing is impossible. He wrote this book. So I want to go back to this exhortation. So where should you really be spending your time? i tell you what would be a very good experiment for you to do. I did this, I told you, years and years ago, and I do it occasionally now, but I do it mentally. Where am I spending my time? So you get out a calendar on your computer or on your smartphone and block off half hours for every day, for one week. And everything that you do, let's say, just for argument's sake, your day starts at 7 a.m. And you have here what you do here, 7 to 7.30. And you write it down. This is a little bit of work. 7.30 to 8, boom. And you write it all the way down to the time you go to bed. Let's assume that's 11 p.m. Right? That'll give you eight hours sleep. And every half an hour, write what you do on, well, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then review it the following Sunday. Or if you want to start on Monday. And review it, and you will be surprised, as I was many years ago. I always believed I was dedicated and I had very little time. All of a sudden, I was finding big blocks of time, like dead space, where I was not as occupied as I thought I was. How many hours was I spending watching TV? I've always been a person who said, I don't watch much TV. Now my average, I think, of watching television is probably down to 90 minutes to two hours a day. Now, I reserve that because at the end of the day, my mind is exhausted, my body is tired, and I want to go into a kind of a neutral. So I watch shows that I've literally watched 100 times. I'm not interested in what's new. I'm not interested in these Hollywood people. I'm only interested in throwing my mind into neutral so it can relax. So it has a purpose. I don't mind being entertained, but it's something I've seen hundreds of times. Old movies, mostly. Because all the rest of the time, I'm using my mind. So it's not, for me, dead time. It's bedtime, but it has a purpose. Write it down. Try it. It's laborious for seven days, but write down everything you do for the half an hour from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, and you're going to be surprised at how much dead time you have, lag time, time that could have been used even for leisure, like a nap, something productive. And then you're going to say, well, I'm not as busy as I thought I was. Or you find unproductive hours where you spent worrying, let's say. I don't know how you would write that down, but... You sat there brooding over things and so on and so forth. And then you can go to the scripture that says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I am, before Abraham was, I am. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. I am he. John chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light. I am the light of the world. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now these are startling statements, especially that last one, where Jesus says no one comes to God. God as we know. God as he's in the book, I should say. I am the door. Here's another one. I didn't even mention that. I am the door. I'm the creator and the one true God. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm the one true God. There are no other doors. Isaiah, again, I remind you, are there any other gods beside me? God answers himself and says, I don't know of any. Kind of a sense of humor on God's part. Are there any other gods beside me? I don't know of any. First commandment, moral law, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. First commandment, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, small g, because those gods don't exist anyway. Other than the demon spirits who want worship, Satan. But he says, you will not have any other gods before me. I am the Lord thy God. Then we talk about idolatry, using his name in vain, it's the third commandment, and so on. I made a little acronym for you that you can remember this. If you're taking notes, then you write it down. But if not, you can remember it by this word, hope. The spirit of prophecy, eschatology, is a spirit of hope. Each letter represents different things. Now, there's many, many here, but I just want to give you something that you can take home with you. Number one, H, for healing. Number two, O, for optimism. The letter P, for power. Now. And then E, of course, is eternity. We are taught in Old and New Covenants, don't live for time, live for eternity. Let your conduct and your character always be living for eternity, because surely it's going to come. So let me give you some verses here to work with. Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. As we see the New Jerusalem. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Precisely what this means, we won't get into that. Speculation, it can mean a number of things. But in respect to paradise restored, we see how God made everything perfect, including man's diet. Now, it's apparent that we're going to be eating in heaven. And the reason I say that is because when Jesus was resurrected and the apostles were already apostatizing, they were out fishing. And Jesus says, children, have you any meat? And then all of a sudden he's there on the shore cooking up these fish. The life that we're heading towards, not just the life we have now, the life we're heading towards is unimaginable. And if you use a bit of imagination, you start to get excited about that time. And not only that, but it helps to diminish all the sorrows and all the pain and all the problems and complexities and confusion that we have right now. What's the word I would use? Tragic? All right, I'll use that word. It's tragic that professing Christians who suffer from depression, anxiety as well, either don't have given to them by their preachers the scriptures that would lift them from depression, or when they are given the scriptures as an antidote for depression. We don't concentrate on that. See, God doesn't want us depressed. We get depressed. That's not his will for us to be depressed. And here's verses of Christ being the healer in eternity. We know that he's a healer in time, a miracle worker, the great physician. For the Christian, the best way to combat sickness and disease is to trust God. That doesn't mean you do stupid things. It just means that you have to trust God. Here's an example. Plagues, plural, are coming through Egypt. But there's one place none of them ever touch, these plagues. Goshen. And why? Because God put his hand on his people, Israel, and protected them from every single plague. It went around them, it went over them, it went under them, wherever it went, but it didn't go in them. Now you say, well, do you actually believe that? Amen. I actually believe that. I actually believe that. And if you attend my funeral because of some type of premature death, you don't have to be sad. 
Because then my faith has become sight. So it's a win-win. Instant death, instant glory. We have healing. That's the age. Here's O, optimism. And this is interesting to me. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. You wished and you hoped, and now you're depressed. That's the type of sickness here. But it could spawn a physical ailment as well. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Now, I found that very engaging. Yeah. The tree of life is mentioned in Revelation 22 and verse 2. But it's also mention of hope when it comes. So as weak as we may be because of our human frailty and sin, and surrounded by human frailty and sin everywhere we look, yet when we have this hope in us, let me say it this way. Obviously, we're going to be looked at as very unintelligent people. There are people with a fair amount of intelligence who look at us, no matter how many diplomas or degrees you, you earn, as I have had this said to me, well, they're not real degrees. Hey, look, at, I had a lawyer once who graduated from Harvard. And let me tell you that as far as a lawyer is concerned, he was as dumb as a box of rocks <laughs> or a bag of bananas. And then you have people who went to community college. I think I told you this. My math professor at community college level worked on the Manhattan Project. Look him up. Wow. Jasper Jeffries. Community college. He can't be a real professor. Well, we're over here in Oxford. Yeah. Did you work on the Manhattan Project? Well, no, you didn't. But my professor did. And he's in the community college. What I'm trying to say is you can't judge every book by its cover. Because Mr. Jeffries, Jasper Jeffries, my math teacher, was working at a community college level and not Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or Yale. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. Brilliant. What am I saying? Because we study the Bible, people say that we're stupid. No, not stupid. We've given away that which we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose. <laughs> My optimism doesn't rest in this election, the last election, or the next one. My optimism is much, much higher, much more stable in the God that cannot be moved. In the God who is superintending over every aspect of the earth. Whether we understand what's going on or not, we are optimistic. Behold, I make all things new. Right? From the Revelation, I make all things new, and he creates new heavens and a new earth, exactly what we saw in Genesis, but now it's recreated. And that's what's coming next. Amen. Well, a few things in between, but that's what's coming next. That's what we have to look forward to. Okay, P, I go with the old standby for power, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. You know my testimony, what brought me to a sound mind was the love of God, the power of God. And when you are afraid, which we all are tempted to be afraid, always remember, this isn't coming from God. If you're nervous, it's not coming from God. God doesn't make people nervous. He makes people secure. God doesn't make people anxious. He makes them calm. He gives them peace. Then I do this for myself. Whenever I'm tempted to be afraid, Psalm 55, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Amen. We're all tempted to be afraid. Just remember that that spirit, that thought, was not given to you by God, is not being given to you by God. God cannot fail. Amen. That should be self-evident, but I don't think it is. God cannot fail. God cannot fail. Can I give you a little testimony right here? Now, most people understand 
all right, here in the foothills of the Adirondacks, this is a mega church. And in this mega church, there have been at times people who can't figure out how we pay our bills. Well, it's not because we don't have people. I mean, they just don't get it. We received a check from a woman from a whole nother state, $1,000. Same week, another check came. It was all this week, $1,000. When I go before God and I pray, I don't look at you. And I'm going to be blunt with you. This is the part where you're going to talk about me for the rest of the day and be angry. <laughs> so you take out your wallet and God says, you know, tithe an offering. And you don't. You don't tithe. Most Christians don't. Most Christians don't read their Bible or pray. What's new? And you say, well, I'll give a donation. Here is a dollar. If this is all you have left, that's a great sacrifice. Yeah. But if you're making money, this is not even a donation. Oh, you sound like one of them prosperity preachers. I'm not. I'm just talking about human nature. We want big benefits. We don't want much put in. Beautiful thing about tithing in general. I'm off the topic, right? You have a dollar, you give a dime. Somebody makes $100,000, they give $10,000 and doesn't say, well, who gives more? It was equal. Because someone who only had a dollar gave a dime and someone who had the $100,000. And the more money people make, the less they give. I mean, proportionally. Okay. When we look at God and you're tempted to be afraid, the economy, don't raise your hand. You're watching the stock market and it's doing just like the amusement park. What do people do who trade? They're watching. Vaccine's coming out. Everybody's buying. Vaccine don't work. Everybody's selling. So you're reading the news and you got money in your portfolio for your retirement. And God is saying, I'm your retirement. <laughs> I'm your retirement. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He'll send you everything that you need in this world, then eternity. In the acronym of hope, healing is H, optimism is O, power is P, and E is eternity. Matthew 25, 46 these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Here again, Jesus is saying very clearly, not everybody will make the kingdom. Right? Mark chapter 10, verse 30. Speaking of discipleship, this is interesting. True disciples, they shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. You know, I can go any place in the world and I got family. Not my immediate family, not the Irish family, but I can go anywhere. I get invitations all the time that you never hear about because I just don't take them. Come here and preach. Come here and preach. I'm called here. If God calls me someplace else, I'll be there. But for the moment, I'm here, much like Papillon was on Devil's Island. <laughs> and I know that if I go to these countries, which I won't name because some of them are watching, many, many countries have invited me over the years, many years. Come here, come here, come here. Not to stay, just to be there for a you know, month or whatever. And the family, because we have the same spirit. Romans chapter 8. We have been given the same spirit. That's how when we meet one another, that we're so diverse, you know. And you sense that camaraderie. This is family. Family of God. Brothers, sisters, lands. Now, John three fifteen. Whosoever believeth in him, which is Christ, should not perish, which means some will, but have eternal life. John six fifty four. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, of which we now know as communion, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I would like to be there, you know, if it's possible, that all the people I buried, I could watch them come back up again. But I don't think that's going to happen. John 6, 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 10, 28, 
And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And finally, John 17, 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Healing, now and then. Optimism, our outlook should be optimistic. Power, now and then. And then eternity, now and then. And this is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is what prophecy means eschatology particularly, but not to disconnect from Old Testament prophecies fulfilled about him. Yet he's a spirit of prophecy. Let's look at Jesus quickly in our minds. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He heals the sick. Little children come running to him. They sit on his lap. He lays his hand. He blesses them. People that other people won't associate with, Jesus will. He's called the friend of sinners. And then we keep on going and we see the spirit of Jesus Christ is also the spirit of eschatology. The spirit of where we are going. Let me end with this. Bible prophecy is not intended to frighten people who already know Christ. However, if you don't know Christ, well, then those things should concern you. It would be like a bad flood's coming, like Noah, and there's the ark starting to float away, you're not on it. The Bible truly was written by God, and the evidence is there, believe me. We want to make sure in this time, the most momentous time perhaps ever in history, that we're in the right place at the right time. You could have the right ticket and be on the wrong train. You want to have the right ticket and be on the right train. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you today for you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Help us today, God, to have not only the right ticket, but to be on the right train. For those who do not know you, God, speak to their hearts that they may understand and know, because only you can do that. For those who do know you, encourage them with this truth, that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that spirit is benevolent. It is good. Any destruction is only to make room for construction. Anything that you do, just like in the human body, we have osteoblasts, which destroy bone so that the healing part of the body can make new bone, new tissue. But the bad has got to be taken away first. We see the evidence of these things all around us. Bless your name, O God. Bless your name. You make us stable people in the world of instability. You make us to have hope in a world that has very little hope. And some have no hope. O God, cause us to keep our eyes fixed on you. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for these things. Casting all your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. Cast them. And then you work. And you do what you're supposed to do and carry out your responsibilities. But say, God, this is in your hands. Amen. This is in your hands. Thank you, Father, for giving us peace. For this year, whatever it brings, you're still God. Amen. And you're going to save many, many people. Of that, I'm convinced. Many, many people are going to come to you. I truly am convinced of that. So best of times and worst of times. But we thank you, God, that you have made us stable people in a world of instability. And people who have hope. In the world that has very little hope or false hope. We give you all the praise, Father. We give you all the glory. Just remind us during the week to love you with everything that we have. All our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.